back, Explain Yourself listeners. This week, we have Annie Shapiro. She was born and raised in Missouri and educated in Chicago and aged to perfection between Rome, Italy, and New York City. She's a travel writer turned certified sommelier and the founder of Divino. Annie believes that the language of wine is more than a vocabulary. It's a history, culture, and most of all, storytelling. She created Divino as a writer, educator, and wine consultant to bring those stories to life and give people the tools to join the conversation. Well, Annika, I know I'm excited to have Annie on the show. Um, I'm a big connoisseur of wine, but know nothing to say about it, just whether I like it or not. Once on a trip to Napa, I referred to the legs of the wine of the feet. So I like to think that I'm a wine connoisseur. I would imagine that Annie is definitely going to school us in what I think I know about wine, but I do enjoy a really nice glass. I'm a bit of a wine snob when it comes to some wines. Like I just absolutely cannot stand the taste of Moscato anymore, even though I know for a fact that probably 90% of the people listening to this podcast, probably their first glass of wine was Moscato, and we all thought it was fantastic. It's going to be an interesting conversation. I know we just said we're both not very good at wine, but we're just being semi-modest because some of you might not know, Annika and I actually got second place in a wine competition. This is true. We did. We won with a wine that we didn't actually end up tasting. (laughs) We used to go to this wine event, a wine tasting event where you would blind taste test. And I'm sure that if we told Annie about this, she would probably be like, absolutely not. This is not okay. But when I say we tasted blind taste tested on average about 50 wines at the minimum, I'm not exaggerating. We had so many different types of wines and somehow out of all of the wines that all of these people tasted, ours got put in as second place winner. And Julie and I, I kid you not, shrieked at the top of our lungs, jumped up and down. Tim and Sean were so embarrassed by us, but I will never remember this day for the rest of my life. Mind you, we're at the Nelson Atkins Museum in Kansas City, which is a really, really nice museum. And we are just acting like like we shouldn't have been there. Like like woo girls. As the guy that Julie asked what kind of wine we should get for this event, he was like, what kind are you looking for? And she was like, I don't know, some kind that makes girls go woo. And uh, he, he made it happen. Yeah, he really knocked it up of the park. Um, thanks, everybody, at Mike's Liquor. And thank you, Jam Jar, for uh, helping us get second place. We appreciate you. Welcome to Explain Yourself, Annie. We're super excited to have you here. So generally, every episode, we encourage our guests to make a cocktail and have one with us. But this episode is a little special because you actually suggested a beverage for us tonight. So tell us what we are drinking. Thank you, Julia and Annika. It is a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. Well, I took my cues from you because you asked me, um, you asked me if I would suggest a wine for the two of you. And so I asked you in return where you are because, you know, just what wine should I drink? That is not a simple question for someone like me. (laughs) So for any sommelier, really, there will always be a follow-up like, what are you in the mood for? What are you eating? Who are you with? Like there are a million ways, there are a million ways to choose your wine. So I asked you both where you were 
and what you like. And I got back, I got the feedback that you like uh, smoky wines. You had some red wines. You were open to trying something from a region you weren't so familiar with. And then there was also the, the, the issue of being in different places. All three of us are in different places. So one of the greatest challenges to everyone in my profession, at least virtually, is trying to get the same wine into people's hands all across the country. So we had a lot of things to work with. And I managed to track down a Syrah slash Shiraz. It's actually the same grape. Um, this one is from Australia. And it's from Penfolds. Penfolds is actually... The, one of the most historic wineries in Australia. It sort of put Australia and, and Australian Shiraz on the map. And I chose Shiraz or Syrah because it is notoriously smoky. And depending on where it's made and how they make it, it can also be pretty robust and full-bodied and rich and ripe and fruity. And it's definitely like a wine to warm you up on a cold February night. I hope it's getting the, the job done. I just had my first sip of it and I think I'm already a big fan. <laughs> it definitely has that smoky taste like you said. Yeah. And it should open up a little bit too. Um, I got 2018. I wonder if we all got the same vintage. We should have, but sometimes it varies based on the state. So it's not that old. It's only a couple years old, but you know, a couple years in the bottle and a year in the barrel, this wine is aged in oak barrels for about a year, American oak barrels. It's like young sort of sweet oakiness but not too much only a year but over time it'll change a little bit and it should get a little bit more smoky a little more peppery you might get a little spiciness on your palate so enjoy like Annika said I'm also a big fan so you really knocked it out of the park but I want to do a quick um game where Annika and I try to describe the wine <laughs> Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and then have you do something so we're about to say some nonsensical things about wine based off what we know Go for it. <laughs> the nose I'm getting for me personally is like a rose. And I definitely get that smoky taste first. Then I get a little bit of pepper on the back end. Wow. That is a much more eloquent description than I'm going to give. <laughs> <laughs> I don't feel like this one has a very strong smell to it, but I do taste like a pepper tobacco kind of smokiness more so in the aftertaste and it's much lighter before you swallow it. <laughs> um, <laughs> hey, first of all, I thank you both for doing that. Thank you for sharing your thoughts. Always share your thoughts with wine. There's nothing, you're never going to be wrong, okay? Um, and the only way to get, like, to get this down is to practice constantly. So first of all, you smelled rose, Julie. That's interesting. Did you smell like fresh rose flowers or dried roses, like potpourri? Um, it was kind of dried to me because like Annika said, it doesn't have a super like thick smell and it's not exactly like I'm smelling a fresh, soft rose. The potpourri, I think is the perfect word. I think I have to agree with Annika. It doesn't, it's not bursting with aromas to me either. And I think part of that is because I just opened mine about an hour ago. It may, and it definitely, ha it's, it's, it's not super common, but there are times when wine has more on the palate than it does on the nose. And that has so much to do with, I mean, that has so much to do with the way the wine is made and the climate and the temperature when it's being, when it's being actually vinified, turned into wine, because aromas are very delicate. Like they're very delicate molecules and they dissipate, they disappear and they dissipate over time. So 
So it's actually more likely to maintain a little bit of flavor in the wine than sometimes the aromas, depending on how they make it. And this wine definitely has like this, all the spices on the palate. And you said also on the back, did you feel like toward the back of your mouth, like the back of your tongue? It started on the tip of my tongue, really smoky and really big. And then it tasted like I just got a, like a small crack of fresh pepper back there at the end. Oh, or like a dusting of cayenne. <laughs> no, it does. It has a nice, like, I think this wine, if you leave it open for a couple hours and cause it's very dense, you know, like you have to imagine it's those scent molecules are also like struggling to get out of there. It's a very, it's super dense wine. So if you just put a tiny bit in your glass and like, let it air, you know, give it some air. Hello, little cat. Um, <laughs> and I think over time you might get some more aromas, but the flavors are definitely there. It's a, it's a full, it's a medium to full bodied wine. And it's going to continue to expand with time, with exposure to oxygen. It'll probably feel like fattier and heavier and more velvety in an hour or two. And I would say it's not overly dry either, which I think is something that scares people about red wines. Like if you're not used to drinking them a lot, it's more it, like Cabernets can be kind of dry. It's definitely not as dry as a Cabernet, I would say. I think it's a dry wine, but maybe you were also thinking of tannins. Like it doesn't make your, tannins really make your mouth feel dry, which is a very confusing, it's a very confusing set of terminology because dryness, physical dryness is like tannins. Like your mouth, like you had a towel in your mouth, you know, something sucking all the liquid out. But dry also means like on a sugar spectrum, like sweet versus not sweet. So Cabernets tend to be very tannic. Like they have that really like like um, unripe fruit, like biting into that sort of like sucks all the liquid out of your mouth and it can feel very ashy and like literally can feel dry. But they might also be very high in alcohol and very sugary and very fruity and not actually dry when it comes to sugar. That makes total sense. And that is new information to me. I had no <laughs> idea that tannins was what physically made your mouth feel dry. Yes. And ve often, very often, Wines that are dry, like low in sugar, are also very high in tannins. So it's easy to confuse the two, especially because the, the sensation of dryness, along with the adjective dry, <laughs> like it would, it's easy to confuse them. And Cabernet is definitely a tannic grape. It has a very thick skin. Syrah or Shiraz is somewhere in the middle. It depends on how, like if it's a cooler climate or a warmer climate, but it can also be very tannic and therefore also very dry. But this one is not. It's not, as you say, it is neither too tannic. Um, and I'd say it's dry, but it's not tannic. It's not sweet. This is definitely a wine that I would order again. So big round of applause for picking this out for us. I'm happy. <laughs> when we talk about careers, we like to start at the very beginning. I'm assuming you weren't a little child thinking, um, I want to grow up and be in the wine world. So what do you remember as your first thing you wanted to be? First of all, I love this question because I have this conversation with people all the time. We say, you know, it's funny when you're young, you always think, what am I going to be when I grow up? And sometimes it's nothing like you expected. Other times it is everything you expected. In my case, it is, except for, of course, as you say, I was not a child thinking about wine tasting, but I uh, originally... <laughs> I wanted to be a Broadway star, like a cabaret star, singer, dancer, actor in a glittery gown on a stage. I also wanted to be a journalist. 
And then right around middle school, junior high, I wanted to be a film director. So incidentally, I have now I am now a freelance I have been a freelance writer since my 20s. I curate a YouTube channel and I shoot and edit my own videos. With the exception of the Broadway cabaret star, which has been relegated to a hobby, some of my earliest fantasies of my career have come true in their own way, but through wine. I love that you have taken a lot of the things that you wanted to be growing up and kind of melded them into kind of your own dream job, if you will. You've you've gotten to take things that you love, like writing. I mean, Broadway, presenting wine is kind of like acting in a way. You know, you, you have to be big and exciting and present it to people in a way that sells it to them and, and makes them want to drink it and enjoy it. So you're kind of a Broadway star. Oh, thanks, Annika. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a little bit of an actor sometimes, but... <laughs> What did you major in in college? So my degree was um, actually I went to the theater school of DePaul University because at this point I was still thinking about show business. But I studied uh, playwriting specifically because I did love to write. And also I was not accepted into the acting program. So that helped make the decision for me. Um, And then I added a minor in modern languages. I studied Italian which I had always wanted to study for some reason. They didn't have it at my school growing up. And I did like an American literature concentration, like a fake minor, a second minor. So you grew up in Missouri, correct? That is correct. So Missouri is extremely landlocked. <laughs> what, what about, did you go travel overseas and you decided you were really interested in it, in Italian or was it just kind of like this, romantic language that you wanted to learn more about? I don't know if I see we we were very landlocked in Columbia, Missouri. Um, We did travel when I was super young. My father's best friend was was British English. Um, And so we went to England at least once every couple of years when I was super young. I think I actually took my first steps in England, not America. I feel like I should get a passport, although now there's Brexit, so I don't know if that's useful. But I, um, I was there as I have early memories of traveling overseas. I don't know if I realized it was overseas. And my family has always traveled quite a bit. But otherwise, I think I, I just had a very active fantasy life growing up. Italy was not a part of our family. It's not our heritage. It wasn't a place we traveled to at all. I think there was a lot of classical music in my childhood, opera in particular, um, Italian opera, Italian film. I think it just seeped in like the, the culture, the culture that was active inside of my, inside of my home, just sort of seeped in and, and all of a sudden I became obsessed. A little fun fact for listeners. I don't know if they know this or not, but I was actually born in Italy. I read that <laughs> with envy. <laughs> and yeah. goes, I hope you have a passport. I do have a passport. My, my birth certificate, I have two of them. One of them is in Italian and the other is in English. And I don't know that it really does anything for me to have both of them or have dual citizenship there, but it's kind it of does. cool to say. Oh, you should say it a thousand times. And yes, it does. It gives you many options. Good healthcare is one of them. So you are studying film and you're studying 
you know, these different languages, did that have any effect on wanting to go into the wine business? Well, let's see. I didn't, one, another funny story actually from college is that my best friends who are still my best college friends to date, 20 years and counting, that's how old we are. Um, they, our senior year, I believe there was a, an elective, a, a night class, a wine tasting class, and they all wanted to sign up for that class. I, on the other hand, signed up for the travel writing class, same time. They were at the same exact time on Wednesday nights. And I, and they were like, Annie, come on. It's our senior year. This is crazy. Let's do this class together. It's like, no, you guys do the wine tasting class. I will, I'll do the travel writing because I really want to be a travel writer one day and maybe it's useful. And then we would meet up after the class and they would tell me what they learned. And we would go back to one of our apartments and hang out on Wednesday nights. And what's very funny is I, (laughs) none of them went into the wine business. I ended up going into it much later, but because of travel writing. So I, I was travel, right? I was writing, I was freelance writing and this was the mid two thousands. And that class came in handy because it was like, it was about how to pitch articles and how to look for opportunities you know, where to find, you know, how to approach an editor and that sort of thing. And I realized at the time, everyone had a food blog. There were all these foodie experts, like the expression foodie was just being born around that time. And I thought, I am never going to get a great, like pitch a great article about Italy that involves food and wine, like the real, like the heart of travel, which is really like food and wine, as far as I'm concerned. I'm going to have to have some expertise so I can say, I'm not a foodie, but I'm a whiny or whatever the term at the time. I didn't even know what the word was. So I looked into wine education and realized, oh my God, I should go to sommelier school because then I can be a wine expert and I can pitch articles and I'll have this little extra cachet of whatever of, um, of expertise. And I, it will sort of broaden my pitch opportunities. And that is how I got into it. So is that what took you to Italy? No, the wine did not. I was already there. I moved there right after college. So I moved, I got a job right out of college. I didn't know, I didn't know what to do after college. I knew I wasn't going to be a playwright. I figured that out um, pretty quickly after four years of theater conservatory. And I had done a summer, a summer semester abroad in Italy and where I sort of, I really kind of picked up the language and got, I didn't get fluent, but you know, more fluid, if you will. And I realized I was good at it and I didn't want to stop learning. So after college, I looked at, well, the last year of college, I looked at workabroad.com and there were jobs for fresh graduates, you know, looking for their first job in Europe to be sort of like marketing partners and liaisons for these foreign language schools. And I signed up and they accepted me. And so I was set to go to Milan actually right after a couple weeks after graduation. And then I go, I think it's like two weeks or three weeks before they emailed us and said, actually, the program's lost all its funding. Your jobs are all canceled. We'll reimburse your airfare. <laughs> and so I was crushed. I had no idea what, I had no plans other than to do that job, you know, uh, abroad. And so my family, as a graduation gift, paid for me to go to school, Italian language school. So I would not have to stop learning Italian. I could stay there for five months on a student visa and learn Italian and hopefully come back fluent. And then while I was there, basically one thing led to another and I decided I had no intention of coming home after five years and stayed. And that's when I got into freelance writing. The wine didn't happen until years later, like 2006, five or six. So what is the moment you realize 
Are you having a glass of wine when you realize that this is what you want to do as a career? Or are you talking to somebody? What's the story? How did you get started and decide to become a sommelier? Well, I don't think that I, it wasn't a moment that I said, this has got to be my career. But there was, I think, a moment when I realized this has to be a part of my life and more than just a hobby, you know? This is something I'm so passionate about. It can't just be for fun. And I mean, honestly, there was, I grew, I grew up drinking, my dad drank a lot of wine, a lot of French wine. I always resented it and I hated it and I was embarrassed about it because, you know, whatever your parents do is not cool. And so I was not into wine at all until I studied, I studied abroad. And then that was um, my, the summer before my senior year of college. And of course, when I was studying abroad, I was drinking wine all the time. And I came back to my senior year of college and I remember thinking like, I want to go back there. I want to be back there. How do we recreate this experience? And it's like, okay, I've always loved to cook. I'll make some Italian food or something like that. But I would make an effort to go out and find wine, like a wine from, I was studying in Siena in Tuscany, not far from Florence. So we were drinking Chianti all the time when I was there, like whatever wine they brought you in a carafe, you don't even know what it is, just like red wine, house wine. It's usually a Chianti. And I was drinking so I could not get enough Chianti in my senior year of college. I think this is it. Like this takes me back. I love this wine. I have to know everything about this wine. And then even though I didn't translate to a career per se, but it started, I realized I had an association with wine now that was more than just like some random thing they pour in your glass at a restaurant. It meant something. It had, it was significant. It took me somewhere. It was something I wanted to learn more about and tell other people about. And that sort of, that became one of my things, you know, you have your things that people know you for. And I, and when I moved to Italy, I, I moved to Rome. It wasn't the same region at all. So I kind of had to start from scratch, getting to know the wines in that region. You don't, it's not like the Golden Girls. If you guys, you watch the Golden Girls, you know, the old ladies in Miami, what's her name? Um, Sophia is always talking about Sicily. And she's like, oh, picture it in Sicily, 19, you know, 1924, we were drinking Chianti, but that would never happen. You would never drink Chianti in Sicily because every region drinks their own wine. So it's a, it's a, it's a big um, script error, which only wine nerds would ever pick up on. But I got to Rome thinking there was going to be Chianti everywhere and there was no Chianti to be found <laughs> unless it was a special Tuscan restaurant. So I started all over again, and, but I, I definitely realized from the moment I moved back and then later decided to stay for a while, that wine was more than just a beverage that they pour in my glass. Yeah, you mentioned in your bio that you really like the storytelling behind it. Is that something that they also cover in some school or is it mainly focused on question mark? I don't know because I haven't <laughs> gone. Um, good question. Well, every SOM school is different. I'd say they what they have in common is they teach you a basic, they teach you the basic rules of how to taste wine and how to describe wine, starting with how to look at it, like all the, you know, you do the visual observation, the, you know, analysis, and then olfactory, and then the taste, and then you just, then everything, everything you sort of break down and discuss from there. Um, and then they go through different schools, put different emphasis on sort of parts of the world. So like the American programs are more international focused. So they, they teach you a lot about all of the major wine regions in the world because Americans, American restaurants and American wine lists are international. Whereas the Italian sommelier school, which I did, was much, much more Italian focused. 
It was Italian focused, history focused, regionally focused, because for the most part, anyone working in the industry in Italy would only need to know about Italian wines and only have to have a limited amount of international wine expertise because they have so many amazing wines. They don't really need wine. They don't need to drink wines from the rest of the world. There's something kind of fun every once in a while, but you're not expected to know anything about them. And why should you? when you have thousands and thousands of your own wine. So my, I would say my training was more focused on storytelling, more focused on history, more focused on culture, and definitely more focused on the emotional impact of wine tasting. Italians are big into emotion, Annika. You should, I don't know how many of your Italian relatives you are in touch with, but they're they do not hold back. Like, and the more Southern they are, the more emotional they are. And it's just, it's like, oh God, like this wine, like there's so much happening inside of this wine. It's a whole story. It's emotional. It's, and that is Italian, uniquely Italian, I would say. Um, It is not standard sommelier education. And I'm sure that that rubbed off on me and my approach to wine education. So I watched the movie Psalm on Netflix. This was years ago. But the amount of studying and knowing things, just like being able to, you know, look at a wine and be like, this is where it came from. Like that it was, I would never be able to do that. But you also are spending probably hours and hours studying those types of things and being able to have an eye and a taste for it, that kind of stuff. So is there a lot of memorizing obviously memorizing the different regions and that kind of thing, but memorizing like a taste, like can you just blindly taste a wine and know exactly where it came from? I can and I cannot. First of all, I did not do the rigorous, the training that you see in some is like the masters sommeliers, like the top of the top of the top. And as you say, they do, they taste constantly, constantly tasting. They have tasting groups. They're studying all the time. You really have to do that and only that. But on, um, I will say, contrary to what you said, you absolutely could learn to do that. You would just have to have the time and the money and the desire to do, <laughs> like, to go through that process because it is very much practice makes perfect. I mean, I would never in a million years have thought I could tell what a wine was. Like, I have a friend in Rome who owns a wine bar. It was downstairs from my last apartment. And he even has these black glasses, so you can't even see it. So every once in a while, we'll just try and smell the wines and try and figure them out just from smelling them. And I wouldn't, I would never, ever could have imagined I could do that, but it's just, it's completely practice. So for my, the Italian school that I did, we had a very basic, if you could call it a blind tasting part of our exam. There was, it was sort of like maybe 10% of the final score. And the the wines that were, the, the wines that they gave you were not obscure, strange wines. They were wines that had very classic components to them. When you first start studying and anytime I do like a basics, basics class, I have a class on my website for sale. It's like wine tasting 101. And the two wines I use are Sauvignon Blanc and a Cabernet Sauvignon because they have very specific characteristics, especially aromas. As soon as you start to recognize those, then you start, then you can compare other wines to those and you sort of, it's just a point of departure. So you are finished with school then, and you're still writing possibly, and then you go off and start your own business. Can you tell us a little bit about the decision behind that and what, yes. what the road was? 
Absolutely. Well, there's, I am older than, I don't think you know how old I am. And I don't feel like I need to say it on the air, but a lot of time went by. So I graduated college and I was absolutely a free, I was like freelance writing was my number one goal. And I was in, teaching English as well and tutoring and all that stuff. I was doing that for most of my twenties until I started the wine, the wine education. And then I started writing. I started, I became a wine writer really before anything else. I would find ways to pitch stories. And I worked at a magazine part-time and I started a little wine column for them and these sorts of things. I did not start my business until I left Italy where I used to live. Just to recap, after college, I moved there for five months, stayed a lot longer on various visas and non-visas and studying and working. And then I moved home when I was basically, basically the shadow of 30 was like 30 was casting a shadow over me. I guess you could say I was completely panicking in the most generic, <laughs> I hate to admit, I was having the crisis of being a woman at age 30. And I was worried that my friends were going to get married and I didn't know what was going to happen to me. And maybe I should come back to America because everybody wants to be in America for some reason. And it's like the place to work, streets paved in gold. I don't know. Maybe I should do that. So I moved, so I moved back home and this was, I'm going to give away my age, but after the financial crisis, a lot of people in publishing, my contacts, especially from my, from my travel writing freelance career, a lot of people had lost their jobs. And so, whereas a few years prior, I would have expected to move to New York City where I have friends, I have family and coworkers and, and get a job at a magazine or any, you know, pretty easily. Uh, not then, this is like post 2007. And so I got back here and I found like, I've, you know, there were a couple of freelance gigs I kind of picked up immediately, but there was nothing in the way of like a self-sustaining New York City salary. And so <laughs> I just thought, oh my God, what am I, what am I going to do? This is not going to be easy. And I'm already 30 and all these young kids are coming up into the publishing world and there's no jobs. So I, at that point I decided to, and I honestly don't know where the business wherewithal came from. It was like a strike of lightning on a random day. Something told me to start my, an LLC so that I could legitimately be a freelancer and legitimately write off the time in my in my apartment and my rent and the printer that I had to buy and my Wi-Fi. <laughs> and then I just created a business out of everything I knew how to do. So I could do, I was a sommelier, I could be a sommelier for hire. I could translate from English, from Italian to English. I could teach wine classes. I could do wine marketing. All of these things, I just sort of slapped them together onto a business card and like a one-page website and threw it out into the world. And that was the beginning. You had mentioned earlier you have some various classes um, that you teach, Wine 101 and the basics. So tell us a little bit more about those classes. Well, all right. So starting with the free class, the absolutely free class, which I think everyone in the world should take <laughs> because it's I created it as, as a way – I created it so that anybody could learn wine tasting on their own time, at their own pace, um, and with my in my style, which is very like – pull up a chair, let's talk about wine. And that's on YouTube. And that is called 21 Days to Wine. And it's 21, as the title would imply, it's 21 episodes and 21 days. And you start from the very beginning. It's an introduction. And then we get into all the steps, as I was saying earlier, like 
the visual analysis and the olfactory analysis and the tasting, but I go into visual of white, visual of red, visual of sparkling, and I get sort of a little bit more complex, but each one has its own episode. So you can really sort of, you can ease into it. I recommend watching it all in order because then you can kind of build up at around the 15 episode point. We do a full wine tasting and taste one wine from start to finish. So that's to give you an idea of the pacing. It's like, and each video is like five to eight minutes long. And then you can actually get all of the class notes to the videos through my website. When you create an account, it's free. And I think that's a great way to start. And then if for other, um, for something a little more structured and sort of to the point and not as time consuming, I have a course for sale currently on my site. It's $50. It's called Wine Tasting 101. And you can, you can purchase it directly on my site, divino.wine. And there's a section courses. And I'm in the process of creating new ones. And it's like a BYOB wine tasting experience. So there's like a, there's a video tutorial that takes you through the tasting process of a Sauvignon Blanc and a Cabernet Sauvignon. I do them both. And there's a whole list of materials. Like I give you some items to bring with you to the class to sort of help you recognize smells and tastes. And there are blank wine tasting notes to fill out and sort of a step-by-step checklist. There's a lot of material in there. It's, I think it's a pretty good deal for $50. And it's the thing that once you buy it, you can access it anytime and you can start and stop the video and you can do it by yourself. You can do it with friends. I recommend doing it with somebody else because then you can compare your notes. It's like the most important part of wine tasting is the conversation at the end. Like I smell this, I see that, I taste this. What about you? Julie, I know what we're doing for our next podcast planning session. We're going to have, <laughs> we're going to do the virtual wine tasting instead. Those are the prepackaged things. Then, I mean, if they're on my website now and it's constantly evolving with, you know, this isn't a very interesting year. And I say interesting, but I think we all know what I mean by interesting. <laughs> it's in a lot of adjectives, but um, I've had, I've created a bunch of different ideas, sort of virtual wine tastings live with me. So like an hour's long zoom with me that you can buy. The only thing is it's hard. It's really hard right now because again, you want company, you know, and, and not everybody wants to buy one, two, three full bottles of wine. So stay tuned because more and more companies are working with wineries to bottle many, like really many bottles and make little tasting packs. Like it's just starting so that you don't have to buy. Cause right now, if you wanted to all buy your own wine, it's, you're going to have to buy very cheap wine and you don't have a lot of selections, but coming soon. And hopefully through my site too, we'll be able to work with more and more wineries and get these tiny little tastings like that vine box wine tasting club, that size little vials. So you can taste nicer, more interesting, like a diverse selection of higher quality wines without having to spend money on the whole bottle, which I think is going to be super. I love that. That's super cool. Because like you said, you open three bottles of regular size wine and then you're like, I know that I can like kind of recork these or save these, but then you have to still drink them within a couple days. And that's just a lot of wine to drink by yourself. It is. It's not as much during the last year. <laughs> Everyone seems to be drinking so much more by themselves alone, but no, it's not healthy. And no, that's a lot of wine. Well, also for your videos that are out right now in your packages that you have, it is right before Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving. <laughs> you mean I'm three bottles alone. I'm having 
Two it's, bottles alone. <laughs> right before Valentine's Day, you guys. It is. Um, so what a great thing also to ask for. That's a fun activity you could do with roommates or whoever. Oh, yeah. I've had some requests already, I will tell you, for Valentine's Day. And I just added a component to the website. Now you can buy wine experiences for someone else. But you can also just get in touch and buy... You can buy a gift certificate. You could, for instance, my friend, um, my friend in Dublin, she, I hope, well, I, there's no way these people are going to hear the podcast unless I send them a link. She asked me to, um, she wanted to buy them a one hour, one to one and a half hour wine tasting, totally customized to them. And they actually, he's from California. She's Irish. They own a taco truck in Dublin and he's, he's sort of a specialty chef. I don't know what it's, I think he trained at the, like one of the American Culinary Institutes in California. And so he knows a little something about wine and I'm sure that'll be a very interesting class to design for them. And so she's just bought a gift certificate through my company, but she just got in touch with me. And so I'm sort of, I'm sending them the, the voucher, but yeah, you could do, I mean, you could do a custom one, but there's a couple, there's a bunch of things on there. The gift certificates don't expire for three or three months. Anything you book, you you book it by getting in touch ultimately. So you buy it and then you get in touch and we set the date. So nothing is like, they're not events that you have to RSVP to that if then all of a sudden your plans change, like you get the vaccine and you decide to go on vacation. Um, you can, it's not like that. You can schedule them around, you know, on your own time, whenever you want, wine and chocolate, like sexy, sultry red wines, like sparkly wines, whatever theme you're interested in. If there's a wine you like, like I have a BY, I have a choose your own wine option. You could, if there's a wine you love and you want to learn more about it, you choose that one and you, you go click through, you get in touch. I study the wine if I don't already know about it. And um, I set up a tasting for you and your loved one. Well, we'll definitely be linking that in the show notes. And like Julie said, that would be an amazing Valentine's Day gift. Hint, hint, Sean and Tim, if you're listening, Julie and I want this for Valentine's Day. Thank you. I've postponed it so many times because I didn't publish it. I didn't really publicize it, but I've now set the date, February 18th, which is supposedly, according to social media calendars, National Drink Wine Day. I am actually hosting a Q&A Italian wine. It's $15. You bring whatever Italian wine you want, BYOB. You sign up on my website at events the only event currently published and you can send in questions in advance and we will just talk learning wine in Italy, Italian wine culture, what makes Italian wines different. And then I will answer questions for anyone who sends them in February 18th. I'm sure, you know, going to your classes will help a lot with this, but for, you know, somebody who hasn't been to a wine class before, haven't taken one of your courses, what do you think is the best way to find a wine that you actually like? Of course, you have to try, um, you have to try so many wines, but it's not just about trying them because, you know, we're always, everyone's always talking in like yoga and meditation, like be present, be present, but nobody really talks about that with food and even less so with alcohol, with beverages. Like it's not just about trying a bunch of wines. It's about paying attention to them, really stopping to pay attention. So you don't really, you'll never know what you like. It's remarkable how many people say, oh, I hate red wines, or I hate white wines, or I hate sweet wines, or this or that. But they've never really taken the time to taste a whole spectrum of, let's say, sweet wines, because a wine can have a lot of sugar in it, but a wine could also have a lot of acidity in it. 
which works, which will balance it out. Like Riesling, which is one of the world's most popular wines and incredibly elegant. And there are many, many, not all of them, but a lot of really amazing, elegant Rieslings out there that are sweet. Like the sh there's sugar in that wine that you can feel. But then there's also a sh like acidity and minerality so that every sip is sort of this whole journey of sensations. And you would never put that in the same category as like Coca-Cola, which is just totally sweet and nothing else. You know what I mean? Or like fruit juice. It's not like that. So sweet, even the word, the adjective sweet has so many different variations and so many nuances. Um, so you really, I say you have to try a lot of things, but pay attention when you try them. Consciously, presently, like look at the wine, smell the wine, think about the wine, make a mental note of what you ate it, what you drank it with. That's how you find out what you like, really. So in that process of kind of figuring out what kind of wines you like, what kind of wines you don't like, when should you splurge on a wine and when should you save on a wine? Well, that's a great question. And one of my early homemade YouTube videos <laughs> was all about um, cheap versus expensive wine because that's one of the like, most Googled questions on the planet. There's an easy answer. The more you know, the more you spend. Because if you don't know the difference between, if you don't know the difference between an expensive wine and a cheap wine, there's no reason to buy an expensive wine. But once you get into a certain, let's say you start studying Cabernet Sauvignon and you're really interested in Cabernet. So, and you want to start tasting them from all different parts of the world, or different, even just different states in America. And then you want to taste like Bordeaux and taste them from Chile or taste them from Argentina, whatever it is. At that point, you should start spending more money because it's worth it to sort of expand your palate and your education. If you're not really attached to the wine or you're not you're not focused on it and you're not really intent on learning, there's no reason to spend money. If you're cooking with it, don't worry about spending money. Um, if you're making sangria, don't spend money. If you're making like <laughs> vin brulee or like vino caldo or, you know, like mulled wine, don't spend money. Spend it when it matters, you know, just like really just like anything else. If you think about it, when you care, you spend more. When you know more, you spend more. Right. Like save it for the, you know, anniversaries or big events kind of deal. That too. But I mean, even so, if you don't know anything about sparkling wine, don't buy yourself a, like a $200 bottle of champagne. If you don't know, you're not going to appreciate it. Get yourself a nice Prosecco or something, a nice Cava. Because if the idea is like bubbly wine makes me feel like I'm celebrating something, that's enough for you. And that's wonderful. So don't feel like you have to splurge just because of an occasion. Splurge because that product in particular is really meaningful to you. I feel the need to splurge. <laughs> I mean, you splurge also on yourself. Like, I mean, and the people around you. So if you, if the people, the last thing I will say on this topic is if you're going to be around other people that you know care about wine or they have a good palate or they're professional chefs or something, definitely splurge because they will appreciate it. I can tell you the number of times people have come to my house. And I mean, everybody knows I'm in the wine business, they know I have access. And they come and they bring, like they bring, if they bring good wines, it's so nice. And then we open them, we drink them together. But people come like, oh God, this wine is probably really crappy. I'm sorry. And I just think, why are you bringing me a wine you have to apologize for? You should not have done that. Like either don't bring me the wine that you're embarrassed about or like bring me a, spend a little more money and then we'll drink it together. Yeah, or bring dessert. <laughs> or don't bring wine at all. <laughs> don't try. Yes, yes. So we had a lot of listener questions because a lot of our listeners really enjoy wine and want to learn more about it. So one of the questions is, 
the ratings that you see at the grocery store, you know, by the price tag, do those matter? Should we be paying attention to them? Yes and no. So I'm sure you love that answer. <laughs> so the ratings, the rate, how do wines get rated? I've been in, I've been part of this process. The more marketing a wine can afford, like a marketing team, like you, to get those ratings, you have to send the wines in. You have to read every year. You have to get back in touch with the publication. You have to fill out a bunch of forms. So to get those ratings is already a process and it costs a lot of money just to get to that point. So you know that a smaller winery, like a small family production winery, may not ever have access to that. So not having a rating doesn't necessarily mean that you don't that you didn't rate well. It might just mean that you couldn't afford to get, send off your wines to get rated. So there's that. Um, I would say the ratings matter. Let's say you've, you've got a ton of wines to choose from and everything is sort of more or less in the same price point. It's not just about the rating, but if a, if a wine is rated with a publication like Wine Spectator, Wine Enthusiast, it does mean is you can go and read about it in the publication. You know, the wine has been featured, the wine has been reviewed. It gives you an extra perspective, somebody else's opinion. So if you're trying to get to know a wine, seeing a rating does mean that it's been reviewed somewhere else. And that's, you know, that's just another set of tasting notes and another set of eyes, ears, nose, left, like mouth. So to that, I mean, I'd say to that end, a rating can be helpful. But not everything. But not everything. No, a rating does not make a wine by any means. And I would think it would be hard even to understand the rating because I'm sure everybody has such different palates. They do. And every school teaches you how to rate wine, like gives different values to different components. But of course, it's subjective. So, you know, I think when you get up into the 90s, like the best wines are in the 90s. I mean, to someone it's a 90, to someone else it's a 98. That means there's, I mean, often there's a panel, so it gets averaged down to, you know, a 94 or whatever it is. So yes, it is subjective. There are basics though. Like to get into the 90s, it does require the wine to have, like say, a minimum of elegance, a minimum of complexity. But all of these components are, should, should depend on the type of wine. Like not every wine, you don't have the same expectations for every wine. You know, it's based on variety of wine, the grape variety, the region, the appellation. You expect more from like a Cru Burgundy than you do from like a $15 Pinot Noir from Florida, which does not exist. <laughs> I just, I was thinking what could be the opposite end of the spectrum. That is the point. You don't, you know, you don't, you would never compare a champagne and a Prosecco in the same, you know, by the same standards, for example. That totally makes sense, um, which brings us to our next question. So speaking of looking at all different types of wine, what is like your biggest tips for ordering at restaurants when I walk in and I don't know what I want to drink and I'm just perusing the wine menu? Ugh, another great question. So, and I get asked this quite a bit. Uh, a, it depends on the restaurant because not every restaurant is a wine restaurant. So many restaurants, they just have wine there because you know people expect there to be wine, but when you ask the servers about it, they might have no idea what they're talking about. Never feel bad about asking your server or if there's a sommelier or someone, never feel bad to ask them questions. That's why they are there. You, can, you should be able to try as many wines as you want if they have wines by the glass. They should be patient with you and nice to you, and you should tip them very well. But not every restaurant is, a, is the kind of restaurant that does that. And so the first step is to like a, sort of um, evaluate your expectations. 
you know, this, like I would say, not evaluate, establish your expectations when you go into the restaurant. And of course that takes practice. What you'll start to notice are the same wines over and over and over and over again, always the same wines. Those are large, like huge mass produced wines that are inexpensive and easy to sell by the glass. And you notice a lot of restaurants just throw them on the menu. But when you get to a, a restaurant with a longer, more complicated wine list, they've put some thought into it. And chances are someone on the staff did that. Someone took the time to put that together. And that means somebody there knows what they're talking about, or at least has some idea. In which case you should definitely ask them for help, tell them what you ordered, try to describe what you like and, and let them guide you. That's what they're there for. So this is a really good listener question because I think there is a stigma behind this. Is there really a difference between screw top bottles and corked bottles? For years and years and years and years, everyone thought screw caps are cheap and corks are expensive. And the truth is, yes, screw caps are cheaper and corks are more expensive in the production at the production level, like at that stage. So, you know, wines that have corks are going to cost more. Um, wines that have screw caps with caps cost less to produce. Um, I mean, at least that part of the production costs less. Many, many, many wineries, especially in Europe, are super attached to the cork because it's tradition. It's like, this is what we're used to. This is what we see. Like, we want a cork or nothing. Like, everyone's going to think our wine is cheap if we have a screw cap. On the other side, a lot of new, like, new world wineries in, like, South America, United States, um, I'd say a little bit, a little bit South Africa, Australia, New Zealand, they're using the screw caps more and more. Why? Because they don't have the, they don't have the history. They don't have the centuries of wine, his, like wine culture, you know, that old Europe has. So they don't necessarily associate wine with a, with a look and a feel. And even like the smell of the cork, the process of removing the cork, that's not a part of their culture. So they're less attached to it. The problem with corks, however, aside, it, sure, there's an environmental aspect. People are trying to be more ecological and Corks, however, advocates for corks will say that those tree, like a cork, the cork producing trees, they reproduce very quickly. They're not a drain on the overall grid, like they're not creating a carbon footprint. However, um, it's still another tree. It's still, there's still deforestation involved, et cetera. But more than anything, I'm, I'm less environmentally concerned because I'm older. <laughs> so, you know, I think the younger people are much more concerned with the environment because you have to live with it. I'm more concerned with the age and like ageability of the wine and the quality of the wine. So biggest difference between the cork and the screw cap quality wise, wine drinking wise is what happens with the cork is micro oxidation. It's porous. So over time, there's a little bit of like a little bit of oxygen enters and exits, you know, the wine bottle with a cork. And for wines that are meant to be put in the cellar for 10, 20, 30, 40 years and evolve, they need that microoxidation. That's what causes them to, for like the tannins to relax and the oakiness of the oak barrels to sort of to dissipate and get such like to sort of level out and, and all these beautiful components to balance and evolve and change and the, everything. They need that oxygen. And right now with screw caps, there isn't, they, they don't really, they haven't yet perfected a screw cap that allows wines to age in the same way but it's coming like those small little vials I was talking about. They were do, they're doing so much research into screw caps because they are environment. They're much more environmentally sound. They're recyclable and they're not susceptible to TCA, which is like a, it's a compound. It's, it's a bacteria that can result in that really like musty moldy. When you say a bottle of wine is corked, 
And the moment you discover it, you can never go back. So anyone who doesn't know what that smells like, consider yourself lucky. But that can that happens, of course, it can affect an entire case and it can an entire shipment of wine, like on a container at sea. It can ruin so much wine that you put your heart and soul into producing the wine if that gets into the wood. Into, and it can kind of jump from like wooden cases to shipping containers. All this is like, it's very precarious. So screw caps also ensure that your wine tastes and smells the same. I mean, notwithstanding, there are other, there are other wine defects that can happen, but you eliminate that risk, which I can say as a wine, having sold wine, having opened wine on a regular basis, there's nothing more demoralizing and sad than a corked bottle of wine. So I am totally pro screw cap unless you're putting it away for five to 10 years in the cellar. That makes a lot of sense. And I'm glad to hear that those screw top bottles are not significantly lower in quality than the corked mm -hmm. ones. Not in the least. There are a lot of fake corks too, like plastic corks. So do not let that be an indicator of quality if you're planning on drinking the wine in this in the year or two. So I'm sure this is a question that you get asked a lot and it was a very common question for us from our listeners. What wines do you recommend that are under $10? I live in New York, so unless it's a half bottle, this is a really tough one. But surprisingly, even after importation, wines from big wine producing countries like Spain, Italy, France, Portugal, and Chile often come at a better value than domestic wines. There are a lot of reasons for this and we can get into that later. But to answer your question, um, the best wine under $10 or close to $10 that I can think of is probably a Vino Verde, which is Portuguese for young wine. It's a style of wine from a particular region. It's most often a blend. It comes in white, red, or rosé, but white is the most commonly produced and the most definitely the most commonly exported type of Vino Verde. And you can find one for around $10 called Broadbent Vino Verde. It's got a turquoise label with a red flower on it. Do not expect a full-bodied or complex wine. It's gonna be easy breezy, budget beautiful, dry, a little bit possibly sparkling, a little, you know, a touch of acidity, young, fresh, easy, $10. I often hear friends say that they don't wanna drink wine because it's too high in sugar. So which wines are the highest in sugar and which wines are the lowest in sugar? I get this question a lot. <laughs> I always start with the classic method wines like Cremant, Cava, or Champagne, and Francia Corta. Why? That is because classic method, that is, um, or the Champenoise method, wines made in the same way that Champagne is made. Uh, that is what classic method means. And why? It is because they go through a second fermentation in the bottle. And if you remember from science class, alcoholic fermentation occurs when yeasts feed on sugar. The byproducts are alcohol and carbon dioxide. So the more you ferment, the less sugar is remaining. And you can also tell by reading the label how much sugar is in the wine, more or less, because only sparkling wines, as of today, will tell you an approximation of how many grams of sugar per liter are actually in them. So if you see brute, extra brute, you will have six grams of lesser sugar per liter. Brut Nature, Padose, if you see that, there is next to no sugar left over. Just as a quick uh, tangent, the reason they're able to do this is because when you make sparkling wines, you ferment the wine a second time, you cap it, that's why you create bubbles, that is carbon dioxide, and then when you're finished 
winemakers usually add a little bit of wine and sugar back in just to get a nice balanced flavor. So based on how much sugar they add back in, that is how you get the label, the brute, the extra brute, or dry, semi-sec, all of that. So if you're looking for low sugar, look for it on the label of a classic method sparkling wine. Now, an average dry red wine or white wine is somewhere between six and 12 grams of sugar per liter, which is still not a lot uh, if you compare it to Coke or apple juice, which has about 100 grams of sugar per liter. So the best way to avoid having too much sugar in your wine is to avoid drinking a whole bottle of wine. Um, and really the only way to understand what makes a wine dry is practice because you can have big fruity aromas but a bone dry palate for example Sancerre which is Sauvignon Blanc from France it's an Appalachian Sancerre it's very tropical very mineral very big beautiful aroma but it's quite dry on the palate so that is an example of a dry white wine that might smell fruity but it's actually dry and probably has six grams of sugar per liter or less. So we recently had a guest on that was drinking a Pinot Tage. So she wants to know how are grape varietals like Pinot Tage created? So these are called hybrid grape varieties and they are made by cross-pollination. It's a crossbreed just like any other plant crossbreed. You collect pollen from one species and purposefully pollinate the other species. The idea, just like with botany in general, is to call the best characteristics from each one. So for wine, that's usually, well, for all crops, um, resistance, resilience, like resistance to pets and weather, plants that stand up to drought, that sort of thing. Um, And in grapes, you also look to integrate different flavor profiles. So in the case of Pinotage, which is South Africa's signature red variety, it was created in the 20s. It's a cross between Pinot Noir and Cinso, which is also known as Hermitage. So Pinot Noir is a notoriously finicky grape to cultivate. It's very delicate, the skin is thin, but it also has these incredible aromas and it's a super popular flavor profile. So the result, um, (laughs) the idea behind Pinotage was to take what people love from Pinot Noir and merge it with a much more resistant variety like Cinso. Now the result was not, it doesn't exactly, it's not so reminiscent of Pinot Noir. In fact, it's really quite intense in body and aroma, deep, rich, ripe fruit, kind of smoky. It kind of reminds you of Shiraz or Syrah. Um, And incidentally, Shiraz also thrives in South Africa and is also quite sweet smoky. Not sweet on the palate, but has a lot of sweet smoke like that mesquite. So if you like that, you'd probably like Pinotage. We appreciate you taking the time to explain yourself tonight. Is there any way listeners can get in contact with you um, or your website? Oh, of course they can. My uh, website is divino.wine. It's very simple. Um, new URL.wine. So it's divino.wine. I'm Annie at divino.wine. I am on Instagram at Annie Divino. Just my name, A-N-N-I-E-D-I-V-I-N-O. Same on Twitter. I don't tweet very actively, but I'm there. I am never on Facebook, but I do have a Divino account. You can find me there. But I think Instagram is the most active social media. But really, if you want to get in touch with me, check out my, just email me or go to Instagram and check out the website. And one thing in my, I mean, everything is constantly evolving. So if there is anything that you see when visiting my website or you have questions about, I am a one woman operation. So you will not get put on hold 
I do not have an answering service. You can email me and I will get back to you personally. We hope that you enjoyed this episode of Explain Yourself. If you have questions for us, you can find us on our website at explainyourselfpodcast.com. You can also find us on Instagram at explainyourselfpodcast and on Twitter at explain underscore podcast. Next week, we'll be back with a new episode with Andrea Staggs, who's currently a wedding venue manager in Kansas City. If you are currently a bride or a future bride, you'll find a lot of really great helpful tips in this episode. I know that I myself learned a few things that I will definitely be applying to my future wedding. And per usual, if you enjoyed this episode, please like, rate, and review us wherever you listen to podcasts. Your ratings and reviews seriously help us to grow the show and to continue to bring you super amazing guests. And that way, it's not just our moms listening. Uh-huh.